I love me a good Arrow movie. We are continuing in our series, our Parallels series, and this morning we're going to be looking at uh, the words of Christ and the words of James, particularly on the topic of anger. So if you never, ever get angry, you are dismissed at this time. And if you leave, I will be very angry, Blaine. <laughs> We're dealing with this topic of anger as we see it uh, talked about in the Sermon on the Mount and also in the book of James. So I'm going to have the scriptures that we're going to be looking at on the screen this morning. You can turn in your Bibles if you'd like to follow along. It's Matthew 5 at verse 20, beginning there, and then James 1. We'll look at it in just a moment, I think, beginning at verse 19. But here's what uh, Jesus has to say in context, beginning at verse 20 of chapter 5. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. And then this passage in James, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. As Jesus begins to talk in this passage in Matthew, he begins this topic of anger by saying something that might have angered those listening to him. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the elite. They were the standard. They had the right stuff. How is it possible, Jesus, for me to meet that standard? So I would imagine when he's opening this discussion about anger and righteousness that many would have already, I'm giving up, that's it. But Jesus is going to unfold before his listeners exactly what he's talking about. And so in your notes, by the way, if you haven't picked some up, feel free to pick some up. There's lots of scripture that I uh, references in the, referenced in the notes to help you go back and research and do some studying about this. But what Jesus is going to talk about is inside-out righteousness. It's all about inside-out righteousness. So we need Jesus. He is calling us to a different kind, a different quality of righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They took pride in outward conformity 
to many extra biblical rules and regulations, but their hearts, their hearts were impure. They were not right with God. In fact, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. It's a bit harsh, isn't it? Don't you think? In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus is trying to get us to consider the kingdom righteousness that he is ushering in with his teaching, his life, his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection. The righteousness he's talking about is kingdom righteousness, and we need Jesus for this righteousness because it's inside out. It is a righteousness that comes from the power of the gospel to change this dark heart, to change your heart, so that, in fact, those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, now our conduct is way beyond that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because this has changed. People listening to Jesus would have hung on his words and perhaps if this is where he stopped, just walked away in disgust and disappointment. But he continues to unpack and teach very specifically what this should look like in your life. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Nothing very new there. It was probably common understanding that if you murdered someone, you will face judgment. Next item, please. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And now our ears begin to perk up. Murder and anger. Oh my goodness, Jesus, everybody gets angry at some point. And most of the time you're justified in your anger anyway, right? I mean, so how can you possibly equate the judgment that anyone would deserve if they murder with the judgment that someone who just happened to get angry in the heat of the moment? Is that what really you're talking about? He continues, again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Raka and fool are terms of contempt. Raka sounds like spitting, so I, pronounce, I would pronounce it correctly, but there's people in the front row, and so, hey John, so I don't wanna mess up the morning. So it's this very terrible term of utter contempt. It's just, a, just the most profound way to completely disregard the image of God that's stamped on everyone that he's created. It's like calling them an empty-headed, a fool is, is another term of contempt. If Archie Bunker were here, he would say, you meathead. I mean, it's that kind of a, I just dated myself, didn't I? It's, like, it's that kind of, <laughs> who's that, Archie Bunker? It's that kind of contempt and utter disregard for someone's personhood as an, as an image bearer. And so this term of reproach, raka, is terrible. And it was understood in that culture. If you use that term, you will have to face the religious elite, the guys who have the right stuff, the Sanhedrin, if you use that term. But if you, say, if you just say the word fool, also a term of contempt, but not the Sanhedrin term. If you just say fool, wow, now, now we're talking about you are being in danger of a, 
of being a part of the fires of hell itself. What is Jesus talking about? What is he trying us to see? Get us to see that there's something that needs to be cared for in here. So this is first in your notes. You are called to tend the garden of your inner life where God wants to do his greatest work in you through obedience and surrender to him. So we need Jesus. You're called, you and I are called to tend the inner garden, the garden of your inner life where God wants to do his greatest work in you through obedience and surrender. So we need Jesus and his teaching to point us in the correct direction. We don't want to be a people that are so focused on outward behavior that we are simply whitewashed tombs and all that's inside here are dead bones because Jesus has a lot to say about that kind of living, that kind of conduct, that kind of approach to righteousness, to be made right with God. Now, this teaching is not unique in the New Testament. It's not even new with Jesus. It's simply understood throughout the entire scriptures. And so you read in the Psalms, one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the Psalms, this is from Psalm 119. Listen to this writer as he focuses on his inner life, the garden, of his, the garden and soil of his heart, and how he sees the need to connect God's word, God's decrees, God's laws with his heart in order to be made acceptable to God, to be declared righteous, if you will. In Psalm 119, how can a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your word? I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, listen to this one, with my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. All the laws that come from your mouth. This un it's just commitment to the word of God coming inside here, okay? And then uh, as the prayer closes, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts. Consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. And Jesus is the living word of God. Logos, the word enfleshed. So we need his presence in our lives. It's inside out righteousness that Jesus is trying to have us consider and reflect upon. And then we read these words in James. James begins in chapter one talking about testings, trials, persevering through suffering and difficulty, temptations. He, he lists a number of issues that can be quite challenging for anyone and for certainly those who are following Christ. And I think as he unpacks all those teachings and reflections on what it means to persevere, how to deal with temptation, how to suffer through trials, he gets to this point in James 1, and I think he's recognizing that anyone in almost any context who experiences trial or temptation or struggle, anyone in that moment might have to struggle with anger and with strife and with conflict. Because that's what trials and temptations and difficulties can produce, tend to produce. So if there's a financial difficulty within the marriage, that has the potential for anger, for struggle. 
if there's some kind of relational struggle in the family, either parent to child or in-laws or whatever, if there's a, a relational difficulty somewhere within the family, that can lead to taking sides. I'm right. No, he's right. No, she's right. And that has the potential for anger to surface and for chaos and for this to happen. The story and history of the church is filled with unfortunate moments of strife, disagreement over doctrine or Christian practice, even murder as a result of those disagreements. James recognizes that anger is a relational virus that will render the church lifeless and broken, let alone what it does to take life away from a person, to break relationship, unless anger is acknowledged and it's dealt with. And so James gives us uh, these three gifts. I think there are three gifts that we're called to give to one another in relational context. Whatever that context is, first beginning, I think, in our marriages, with our children, in our homes, and then moving out from there. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. The gift of quick to listen. I mean, I tend to listen to, you know, begin looking through the Rolodex. Now I've really dated myself. Look through the spreadsheet of responses. What is going to be the correct response that this person is talking to, to what they're saying? You know, so I'm, I'm not just quick to listen. I'm quick to search for the right response because I am full of amazing wisdom that I will now impart to the, you know, person. So instead of being quick to listen, I'm quick to respond. I'm quick to give them, to fix them, to make it right, to take care of this, you know, all those things. Instead of simply receiving someone's words, just allowing them to unpack, you know, their feelings or what's going on, you know. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. It's just, I mean, just, I just, I want to listen so I can make it right and just end this. Okay? No, give that gift of being, instead of quick to do something, just quick to open up your heart to what someone has to say. Two, slow to speak. This is nearly impossible to me because I'm Puerto Rican. I'm from New York. So it's like utterly impossible. But it's not an excuse, right? So it's slow to speak. The gift of shut your mouth, you know, and let someone just have their say. You know, I'm not very good at that. Especially, especially if someone comes to me with, you know, words of concern about a character issue or a behavioral issue or a criticism or something that they see I may need to pay attention to and fix and work on. Oh my goodness, I am not quick to listen and I'm not slow to speak. I'm quick to defend myself and to excuse myself and to tell them, but you don't understand, you know than the gift of slow to become angry. That's that idea of self-control that Paul talks about, the gift of the Spirit, where you are simply going to receive, especially those difficult words, allow them to sink in. Instead of just being ready to, you know, come out with those gloves on, you just exercise that self-control and receive the communication that's coming your way. And this happens in all kinds of contexts with our children, in our marriage, our coworker, our neighbor, those moments where we simply need to give a gift. Let's, let's listen, let's keep our mouths closed and simply allow our spirit to be quiet and to rest. This is what James says we should give as a gift to others. And then he uses this beautiful um, uh, illustration or kind of picture of a garden. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So this is in your notes. The garden of our heart must be weeded so we can humbly welcome the word that God has sown. And we need Jesus to do this. We need Christ in his presence. I put a bunch of scripture verses under this particular section in the notes. 
And those verses um, are helpful in helping us to learn what it is we need to weed out of our spirit and out of our soul. And, you know, just like, it's not like, you know, in, in May, you take the weeds out, then you wait for the harvest in September, you know. And this, this weeding, at least I know in my life, it's an ongoing process. It is ongoing. There's stuff I continually have to be made aware of and, and learn that's got to get out. It's got to leave my spirit and my heart. Because there's so much malice in there. There's the potential for just defensiveness and arguing and all of that. And that's got to go. Because that has nothing to do with the righteous life that God desires. And it's not reflective of the word that God has planted in here. The Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ. The living word of God. In order for that to shine, I've got to work on cooperating with this salvation. I'll let you look at those verses, but we need Jesus to do this. In fact, we need each other to do this. Remember the words of Christ. The words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. We tend to want to focus on behavioral change. How giant is the self-help section of any bookstore? It's huge. On any number of areas. And so what ends up happening is, you know, I want to make myself the center of the problem. I also want to make myself the center of the solution, which can't possibly work. So no matter what book I pick up or the seminar or the study or, you know, all these things I do, it's like, oh, I have a problem. I will fix me. I will take care of this. The scriptures are teaching something very, very, very different. It's not about behavioral change. If that was it, why did Jesus die? He just would have pointed us to the right aisle in the bookstore. We need Jesus. We need to understand, study, and witness how he responds to suffering and being slighted and being abused, falsely accused. How did he handle those situations? How do we handle situations in our life where we feel slighted? So with that foundation, some of the... Uh, just brief look at those two verses. Let's take a look at anger, this thing that we call anger. We're going to look at a clip from a, a wonderful Pixar movie. If you haven't seen Inside Out, you've got to go see that film. Okay, parents especially, man. Anyway, it's a wonderful, wonderful film. We're going to be introduced to two characters, disgust and then anger. So just take a look at this clip real quick. Here we go. All right, open. Hmm, this looks new. Make it safe. What is it? Uh, okay, caution. There is a dangerous smell, people. Hold on, what is that? This is disgust. She basically keeps Riley from being poisoned, physically and socially. That is not brightly colored or shaped like a dinosaur. Hold on, guys. It's broccoli! Yeah! Well, I just saved our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're welcome. Riley, if you don't eat your dinner, you're not going to get any dessert. Wait, did he just say we couldn't have dessert? That's anger. Cares very deeply about things being fake. So that's how you want to play it, old man? No dessert? Oh, sure. We'll eat our dinner right after you eat this. Ah! Right, right. Here comes an airplane. Ah! Oh, airplane. We got an airplane, everybody. Oh, man. <laughs> I relate to anger. <laughs> Oh, what does that say about me? Here's the official character description, the official Disney character description of anger. Anger feels very passionately about making sure things are fair for Riley. 
He has a fiery spirit and tends to explode, literally, when things don't go as planned. He's quick to overreact and has little patience for life's imperfections. I thought to myself, someone called Ruth. How could that, how did they know? Oh my gosh. So I'm driving on Route 6, the other speedway just south of I-80. And I'm heading towards Walmart, doing around 60, you know, or so. And uh, I could see in my rearview mirror a Grand Marquis, you know, those giant cars that Ford makes with V8 engines the size of small trucks. And so it's coming up fast. I mean, they've made the jump to ludicrous speed, and I can see that thing coming up behind me. And so in my willingness to help this person, I, I got a little angry because, you know, I'm like, I'm, I was in a small car and that thing will just, it won't even feel me, but like, bump, what was that? So I slow down because that's the Christian thing to do, you know? So I figured I'll do 53, you know, whatever. So I'll slow down, you know, and sure that Grand Marquis, man, it comes, I mean, I was going to have to give it a seatbelt. It was so close to my car. And so apparently he's not getting the message. He must have way more to learn, poor soul. So I... I'll go down to 50 now, you know, so I'm slowing down. And then I hear the V8 rev, and it sounds like a small shuttle is lifting off Route 6 because those Ford engines are gigantic. And that Grand Marquis starts to pass me, you know, and there's blue flames coming out the back of it. And as I turn to the left, I see these two elderly people. I mean, their, their collective ages had to be about 250 years. And I'm not kidding. And he is like, he's short. And so... His face is like right at the hub of the steering wheel. And he's like looking, you know. And I mean, it's a rocket. That Grand Marquis just goes right, right by me. And I'm like, I'll see you in the Geritol aisle. I'll meet you there at Walmart. That's awesome. You know, and inside, you know, it's like all of this machinations, all this like, ugh, and angst, you know, over a Grand Marquis driven by Mr. and Mrs. Older Than Dirt. It was unbelievable how that, you know. Or, or what happens when, you know, I'm trying to call customer service? Have you ever had... Yeah, I know. I, right? Why do they call it customer service anyway? Thank you for calling. We could care less. For no help, press 1. For no help and to be sent to an endless maze of telephone prompts, press 2. To hear this menu again, press 3 and get lost. And, you know, I'm sitting there, my phone, you know, so frustrated, you know. Or we, we get to that point in the day when we are just about, you know, at the end of our rope with our kids. And uh, we are, we're, you, can, you just feel that, <laughs> that temperature rising and the lava begins to flow from your head. And on all of a sudden, you know, you're in a rage and you're yelling at the kids. And, you know, if they were to videotape it and show it back to you, you're like, who is that person? That's not me. You know? Or you can't believe that your spouse, you know, said that about you or brought this to your attention. You know, even if they did it with love and, and kindness. Or you can't believe your spouse just didn't hear you or doesn't get it. You know? And so, in my defensiveness, they lash out. You know? Well, what about when you... You know, just all of a sudden the anger rises. We need Jesus to transform our heart and to live in the midst of a very dark and difficult world. A fallen world 
And don't even get me started about what's going on in our culture, in our country. I had to take a fast and talk radio because I was pounding the living daylights out of the dashboard. You know, it's like, how do we, how do, we do this? How do, living in relationship at any level is difficult. It just brings challenge. And our default, and we wonder why our kids yell at each other. You know, I mean, it's like they just, well, they see mom and dad, you know, freak out. And so when they have difficulty, they freak out, you know, because it's much easier to just gain control and to shot of anger will take care of these guys than do the hard work of teaching and nurturing and talking and taking time. That's a lot harder. And it takes more time. And I don't have that kind of time, you know. And what do you do about living in the culture that calls evil good and good evil and telephone prompts and traffic and grand marquees? There's a wonderful book called The Cry of the Soul. And in this book, um, they identify two kinds of anger. They identify righteous anger and unrighteous anger. And here's um, how they define it or what they talk about in the book. The essence of righteous anger, a hatred of sin and a love of beauty. I love that definition, a hatred of sin and a love of beauty. The core of unrighteous anger, a hatred of vulnerability and a love of control. You know, talk about, you know, there is my life. Unrighteous anger seeks to gain independence from God and others. Now, we know from the scriptures that God gets angry and he expresses his anger. We don't talk about it often, but just imagine the horror, the sheer horror of those treading water as they see on the horizon the ark. And the waters rise higher and higher and higher until there's nothing else to hold on to to avoid the inevitable. And everything that has breath and everything that moves is drowned and is destroyed as an expression of God's absolute hatred and anger towards sin. God was so angry with Israel that he looked at Moses and said, Moses, I am so tired of these stiff-necked people. I'm going to wipe them out, and I would like to create a nation from you, Moses. That's how frustrated and angry I am about these people. I'm done. I am going to wipe them out from you. I will build a new nation, God's anger against the arrogance and the pride of the nation of Israel. In an inexplicable display of both God's immeasurable grace and his holy judgment and anger against sin, he places his chosen people, the nation of Israel, in bondage and in slavery for over 400 years. In Genesis 15, we read, until the sin of the Amorites reaches its full measure. The people, his chosen people, are in slavery and bondage. Then he frees his chosen people from bondage and uses the nation of Israel to exact his judgment and hatred against sin. In his patience and his love, he waited for 400 years while his chosen ones were in slavery, giving them an opportunity to repent, to change their heart. In 2 Thessalonians, I won't take time to read it. If you read chapter 1, there's this amazing description of what it's going to be like. In fact, some translations use the words payback. God is going to pay back those who do not believe when Jesus is revealed with mighty angels of flaming fire to deal retribution on all who do not believe. 
I mean, just a fantastic, I would love to see Steven Spielberg put that on the silver screen. The horror of all those who when Christ is revealed with mighty flaming angels and they realize that they are under the wrath of God because God cannot abide sin and darkness and disobedience and arrogance. We don't talk about his anger a whole lot, but it is present in the scriptures. And it's hard for us to process this because my anger is definitely tied deeply to preferences, things I want, things I desire. So I don't have the kind of justice in any way, shape, or form that God possesses. My anger and frustration and sense of justice is stained by sin and my bent towards self and my and what I want and my needs and please serve me. It's difficult for even to fathom that this God can execute that kind of judgment with such violence and power and still be pure and holy and gracious and kind. But this is what we're called to keep in intention as we read the scriptures. My anger is more like Cain. Cain who decided to ignore the life-giving word of God. Cain who decided to make his life more about it's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair until the nurturing of that feeling and that pride and that arrogance resulted in the very first murder recorded in Scripture. He takes his brother and he slays him. He kills his brother because it's not fair, God. And how many times have I murdered in my own spirit others? I have little conversations in my head. I didn't say that to him, but now what I'd like to say is, if I only said, you know, oh, I wish I would have thought of. In my brain, in my mind, in my spirit, I'm just tearing someone down or chopping them to pieces, you know. My anger is more like, like Jonah. Jonah knew full well that God was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. But Jonah decided to hold on to his own anger. He knew the character and nature of God's love and grace. But he held on to his hatred of these people. And he ran away from the will of God. And he refused to receive the very grace that he was called to proclaim. And so God had to minister to the minister and heal and deal the messenger of his love and grace. My anger is more like Saul. Saul who refused to obey the word of the Lord, who refused those that God had put in his life as spiritual authority over him. He refused to listen to them. And so he ends up in a fit of rage, throwing spears at David, lashing out against his own son, who rightly and carefully challenges him. And he spends time pursuing David with the only intent to kill David. What is the source of those moments? Why is it that a grand marquis coming up behind me on Route 6 can elicit such a response of frustration and anger? Why is it that I feel completely justified if my kids aren't behaving like I think they ought to and so I put them on notice? Why is it that when my spouse comes to me carefully and just points out something that you know, it's just a character flaw or something that I'm not conducting myself in a loving, caring way. Why is it that when that's pointed out to me, I just want to fight and excuse it? 
James gives us a little bit of a clue when um, he writes, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. There's just a tendency for, for me to lean inward with preferences or how I would like my world to look. Nothing wrong with desiring a peaceful home or kids behaving well. Nothing wrong with the, desiring a marriage where there's you know, the pleasant atmosphere where things are going well. Nothing wrong with that, but I don't get to be the judge and jury of what that looks like, and I can't control life. So if the kids go crazy and I turn my, my perfectly fine desire to have a peaceful home, whatever crazy it looks like, whatever age the kids are, and if I suddenly stand on this place of judgment and decide that my anger is going to be the way that I'm going to make this right and deal with this, what I'm saying is I am now about my preference, how I want my world to look, how I would like these darn kids to cooperate with my definition of what it means to have a peaceful house. Because it's about me and what I want. So there's a real challenge that we face that James talks about. So how do we deal with this anger? How do we un unpack what's going on? There are four things. I, got the, I don't know what to do with the numbering. This is common core math. One, three, four, five. There you go. <laughs> Be still and wait. Ponder your desire. Ponder your sin and ponder God. Be still and wait. Ponder your desire. Ponder your sin and ponder God. Psalm 37 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways. When they carry out their wicked schemes, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. And we need Jesus to do this. Let's look at the life of Christ. What did he do? What did he do? How bad is it that that grand marquee is coming up in my rearview mirror like a rocket? Is that as bad as the treatment that Jesus received? Falsely accused, mocked, scorned, falsely convicted, his friends abandoning him. What was his response to that? What would his response to be if he was next to me in my car looking at the Grand Marquis? He was silent. He didn't say a word. How bad are my kids behaving? How difficult really was it me to just simply be slow to speak and to be quick to listen when my wife comes to me with concerns about my character or my life. Is it really that, is it as bad as what Jesus went through in his suffering? And how did Jesus respond? In silence. We're taught by the life of Christ how to receive suffering and difficulty and challenge in humility and in grace as he did. But we need Jesus to do this. Be still and wait. Slow to speak, quick to listen. Even in that moment where you feel, you know, when we're angry, it's because we feel we're assaulted. You know, someone pointed something out, the grand marquee, you know, that telephone prompt. And my response when I feel assaulted is to take out the rifle. Oh, yeah? You're not going to, you're going to keep. Scriptures are trying to teach us. Jesus is trying to teach us, whoa, you better consider your heart. And just be still, even in that moment, and put the rifle away, you know? There's something that's happening inside of you that you need to pay attention to. 
because you don't want to be Cain. You don't want to be Jonah. You want to be more like Christ. Ponder your desire. What is it that I want? In the moment, what is it that I want? Is it really that I want this gray marquee to disappear? Is it really that I want the customer service to actually do customer service? Is that what I want? Is my desire for my family and my marriage, is it a desire that it's cooperating with God's grace and love? Or is it a personal preference that I would like to have met right now, please and thank you? What is it that you desire? Is that a kingdom desire? Is it other-centered, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2? Number four, <laughs> ponder your sin. Ponder your sin. I'm often angry and frustrated over the very things that exist in my life, but I don't exhibit anger and frustration or care and concern about the things in my life, but it's easy for me to look at the very same things in other people's lives and go like, what? I must be angered and care and be concerned about the sin in this heart. Ponder your own sin. And then finally, ponder God. The wages of sin is death, Paul writes, yet God's rage against sin. What has God done with his anger against sin? He hasn't directed that anger against me. He hasn't directed that anger towards you. That anger was directed against his son, against Jesus. In the Gospel of John, we read, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. So intense is God's furious hatred against sin that the bitter cup of God's wrath is all that awaits the sinner. That's all that awaits the sinner. But the one who drank the bitter cup is Jesus himself. So how should I respond to that crazy driver? How should I respond to my kids, to that wayward child, to my neighbor? the lady on customer service, what would my response be knowing full well that all the sin in this heart that God hates, that God is furious with, that God must exact his judgment upon, that he took that anger and gave it to Christ, put it on Jesus? How should I respond to the challenges of life? Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our emotional lives move up and down constantly. Sometimes we experience great mood swings from excitement to depression, from joy to sorrow, from inner harmony to inner chaos. And certainly we can include in that list anger. A little event, a word from someone, a disappointment, and work, many things can trigger such mood swings. Mostly, we have little control over these changes. It seems that they happen to us rather than being created by us. Thus, it is important to know that our emotional life is not the same as our spiritual life. Our spiritual life is the life of the Spirit of God within us. As we feel our emotions shift, we must connect our spirits with the Spirit of God and remind ourselves that what we feel is not who we are. We are and remain, whatever our moods, God's beloved children. And so is our spouse. And so is our daughter. And so is our son, neighbor, 
co-worker, very old driver of a Grand Marquis. <laughs> so we're going to come to the altar this morning, to the table of the Lord, and you have my permission to pick up a phone and text or call someone, because Jesus continues in his teaching. If, you, if, you're going, if you're on your way to worship, if you're going to that place where you give and pledge your allegiance to my kingdom, to my way of living, and you remember someone has something against you, if there's someone in your life that there is that disconnect, now is the time to make that right. We're going to reflect on the bruised body of Jesus, the body that received the punishment for sin. We're going to reflect on the blood of Jesus that was shed for you and for me. How is it that we can come to this table and still have hardness in our hearts towards someone? How is it that we think we can attend this banquet and have bitterness in our spirit and not have spoken a word of forgiveness that we ourselves have received in Christ? So this morning, we're going to partake together. I invite you to exit on the left and come back in on the right of your section. Take uh, the bread and the cup. This is a table that's welcome to all those who follow Christ. And be seated, and then together we'll participate. So come to the table.